For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger For the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hey everyone, on this episode of Six Degrees with Mike McKenna, I'm joined by the legendary Chico Resch. 20 plus years in broadcasting, 500 NHL games, the guy's a legend. We know each other dating back to my days in the New Jersey Devils organization and we've remained friends ever since. It's always a pleasure when Chico comes in the dressing room to say hi. I look forward to it every time. I think you're going to enjoy all his stories, his memories, what it's like to lift the Stanley Cup, see Marty Brodeur grow into himself over the years. Enjoy. Hailing from Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan, a Minnesota Duluth Bulldog, a veteran of 500-plus NHL games, an all-star, a broadcaster, and one amazing guy, Chico Resch. I am so happy to have you joining me on the podcast today. Well, that was quite an introduction. Yeah, thanks. Thanks, Mike. Two goalies. You know it's going to be good. It's going to be heady, and I hope people can stay with us because, you know, goalies are the smartest athletes in the world, so we'll... um we'll be given some good insight. I know that. Well, that's what we try to bill ourselves as. And you've spent a lot of years in broadcasting sits. And then people that are of my generation, that's what we remember you as, as a broadcaster. But before that, 500 NHL games, Stanley Cup champion, all this success. And before that even began, though, you were raised in Saskatchewan from Moose Jaw, and you ended up going to college, which is somewhat of a, a rare route to me, it seemed like, back then. So maybe can you describe how you ended up being a college goalie rather than a major junior goalie and how that launched you into your pro career? Well, it's very simple, Mike. I, well, I moved from Moose Jaw, which is only um, uh, 40 miles from Regina, which was a bigger city. And Regina Pats are maybe, the, I think they're the oldest, junior or hockey team uh, in Canada, major junior, Regina Pats. But quite honestly, Mike, I wasn't very good. And I, and I say that humbly. I'm not just trying to – I just didn't understand the game. I mean, I had some skill, but not enough to play at the major junior level. So um, a friend of mine had gone to college, University of Minnesota Duluth, and he said, you know, this is a pretty good option. And um, so I just um, – had you know, I wrote and asked if they'd be at all interested, and they came and watched me. And I was turning 19 that summer, so I knew you know I only got one year of junior left, and then I got to go into the pros. And I knew I wasn't like skilled enough to have any kind of pro career, so I thought if I, I go to college, I'd get a degree, and I'd get another three years of hockey. You know, maybe something could happen after that, and um, and it did. But it was really out of necessity that I went to college because I just wasn't good enough to play major junior hockey. Ah, so this was more of a calculated thing for you, knowing that you needed more time to develop. And you end up there, you play your three years because freshmen couldn't play. Is that correct? Yeah. Yeah. That's and, right. Isn't that you know, something? You get done, they retire your jersey, you end up in the Hall of Fame, graduate, graduated with an education degree. 
Next thing you know, you're looking at pro hockey. Looking back on it, are you pretty happy that you took the route of college and gave yourself that time to develop? Well, that was my only that was my only hope. And in college, uh, it is a fun time of life. Uh, unfortunately, now the the really good players and um, they only go maybe for a couple of years and then they they get lured by the money and they can't hardly say no and they leave. But back in the day when I was playing back in the 70s, most everybody went for a four-year career and, and it was a great time. You know, college is just a fun time of life. Um, and so um, it changed my thinking of the world. Like I hadn't really, I'd never flown. I'd never really been out of, uh, I think I'd been to, Maybe Vancouver once, but I hadn't traveled much. It just kind of opened up my world uh, in many, many ways, and um, and I did, I got a little bit better, but I didn't really I didn't really get it together. And now you hear, as you know, um, my talking about a system. You got to kind of know what you're doing. But during those years, I was just playing. Whatever I thought my skills were, I would just try to use them, not recognizing but some of my flaws had to be changed and, and I had, I had to be more consistent and so forth. So it wasn't until I left college and went to my first training camp, the Montreal Canadians, that something happened that kind of changed my outlook on goaltending. Looking back, I found some pictures of those days at UMD and I see you with a clean shaven face. And of course you have the beautiful mustache that we all know you having today. That's kind of a calling card for you, but were you playing with yeah. a mask as you grew up? And then when did you eventually adopt wearing that? Well, that's interesting. The mask, because like in the fifties, I'm playing without a mask and I am, um, and, and no goalie even thought of wearing a mask because yeah. I don't know, it was, Maybe it wasn't you were a coward if you wore a mask or you just didn't think about it. Uh, but I remember Jacques Plante uh, won five cups and was an innovator, as you know, and, you know, great um, developer of goaltending. He almost had his nose torn off in Madison Square Garden by Andy Bathgate shot. And he'd been just kind of putting this mask on that he and a friend had made out of fiberglass. And when he went into the dressing room in Madison Square Garden, uh, and all cut up and get stitched up, and he grabs his mask and uh, told Blake, who's the coach, says, what are you doing? He says, I'm not going out there unless I put this mask on. I've had enough. And Toad says, no, you're not, you're not going to start wearing a mask. It's just going to ruin you. And Jock <laughs> said, I'm not going out there unless I wear the mask. And then, of course, the coach, as they would do, say, okay, you can wear that mask, but you better win. And Jock did win. But what's interesting, Mike, he didn't wear it from that game on. There was one other game that the coach is hounding him, don't wear it, you know, you used it to protect yourself with the injury, but he took it off for one game. But then he said, I just felt so uncomfortable, he put it back on. And then once the word got through the, the land, uh, I mean, we even heard it out in Western Canada that, you know, Jacques Plant's wearing a mask. And then you could see him on Hockey Night in Canada wearing a mask. It just made all of us, goalies realize, yeah, what are we doing? Back catch, you know, catchers in baseball, they wear a mask. Why would we be playing like this? And so, um, you know, then uh, they started to mass produce some masks. I still have my first one. It's just a crude little thing that uh, you could buy at this sporting goods store. No but, kidding. You was know, it made out of fiberglass? Yeah, it was made out of fiberglass. 
real pretty thick and it had like padding on it, but it was just form fitting. And, you know, my dad was the coach and there was another goalie vying, um, for being the goalie. And, and I was also trying out, my dad talked him into being a defenseman. So then he had bought this mask and then he says, well, he says, you want it? Cause I can't, I'm not using it cause I'm playing defense now. So that's how I got my first mask. Actually, um, a friend of mine had bought it and then he gave it to me. Isn't it crazy um, to think that there was a macho factor to this? Why people didn't think wearing masks was a good idea, which is completely crazy to think about because if you're in the net and you feel more protected, wouldn't you be more willing to step in front of the puck and do what you need to do to make the save? Well, yeah, exactly, Mike. And, we'll, and you know, I mean, it was the coaches that thought you wouldn't see as well. But then, again, well, let's see, a back catcher in baseball, he's got to see that ball pretty quickly and clearly. He's using it. You wonder why goalies didn't at least have, like, a you know, catcher's mask on or something. But, I mean, I, I lost a tooth and I got stitches and stuff and – I uh, know I was afraid. I made a lot of saves with my eyes closed because I was afraid of getting hit in the face. Um, so no, there there was a real fear uh, when you played golf. But just the, the other thing about minor uh, when I first started, Mike. This is I was just talking about this the other day. I hadn't thought about it. My first year of I was eight years old, so I don't know if that's mites or what, whatever that would be. I played in my rubber boots. I didn't even have skates, and the guy who ran the the league and the rink said, uh, you can play the rest of this year in your rubber boots, but next year you've got to skate. So what I would do was I would play the games in my rubber boots. And then I would, I finally got a pair of skates at eight years old. I didn't have a pair of skates. And then I would just practice on an outdoor rink to learn to skate that year as well. But I didn't really start playing goal with skates until I was nine, which not a big deal, but back, Today it would be because everybody's skating by five or six. But so it was an unlikely it was an unlikely beginning for me that just kind of by divine intervention, I believe, I finally made it to the NHL. But it, I just shake my head sometimes when I think of how many twists and turns it took to finally get it all going in the right direction. Well, we've both been really fortunate with this game because I can think of so many moments in my career where if just the right mm -hmm. thing didn't happen at the right time or the right person didn't see me play, I'd have never made it. I'd have never made it out of junior at certain times. And, you know, it's, mm -hmm. it's, it's astonishing to think that you were playing ice hockey with boots on and eventually had to learn to skate, make the NHL. And you mentioned your training camp with Montreal that happened later on. And I've done a bit of reading here and found that you credited Rogi Vachon with being somebody who was kind of a hero to you and someone who helped you mold your game. What happened to that training camp that turned your career to the next page? Well, you know, my people, you know, when you're young, you think I'm going to be the most creative person. I'm going to do something, you know, other people never done. And, and, and occasionally in goal or whatever, someone will, will do a little twist to something where someone says, Oh, I haven't seen that before. But the reality of life is we're all kind of imitators or learners. We've learned from other people by watching or listening or whatever. So when I went to Montreal's training camp, the great Scotty Bowman, who became you know legendary coach and Hall of Famer, he was his first year there. And um, they, the Montreal Canadiens had seven pro goalies. Rogi was there, filmed near Kenny Dryden, um, 
their first round pick. Oh, they had Michelle Plass who went on to play in the NHL. Anyway, there were seven guys that eventually played in the NHL going to that one training camp. Montreal was loaded. So I knew I wouldn't have much of a chance, but I thought I might last more than five days. But I thought if I don't, um, I better learn as much as I can. And what they did back in those days, they expect you to come in decent shape. And then what they did, they broke up the, the entire Montreal um, roster and they would invite probably, I don't know, 60 players or something. They had four, four teams. And so you were put on a team and you had some veterans. Uh, Henri Richard, the pocket rocket, was still playing in Belleville. And, and so you had some rookies, some minor league players, and some NHLers. And you were put on these four different teams and you played inter-squad games for the first, uh, let's see, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, for the first five days. And so what I would do, I would play my game in the morning, whoever it was against. And it was against Rogi Vashon. Well, I could just watch him. But if he wasn't playing till the second game, when the other two teams were playing, I'd run across the street to a deli across from the old Montreal Forum and grab something to eat and then bring it back and sit in the stands. And what I did, like, I just studied him. Every situation, what, what did he, because he, let's see, he, I think he'd won the Stanley Cup that year or the year before. So I think if, if I can just be as good as him, or not even as good, but close, I got a shot. I don't have to be just me. I don't mind being a secondary Rogi Vashon. Um, but anyway, so I would watch him every practice and just make mental notes. Where, how did he hold his glove? We had no, as you know, um, like there were no goalie coaches at that time. No, you very much on your him. own. You're exactly so that's basically what I did. And I just, I, I, I'm sure like you, like most goalies, we're quite visual. We look at things, we analyze, we try to remember through visual rather than reading or, or auditorially. So I had to see it visually and it just like a, a camera in my head. I just remembered everything he did. And then after five days, uh, Scotty Bowman and their director of player personnel said, you know, you had a good training camp, but you, you're not ready for a pro, so we're going to send you to uh, Muskegon, which was the lowest minor league uh, league at that time. And uh, and that's what happened. So I just uh, I just went to school on Rogi Vashon for five days and then really tried to imitate him for the next two or three years. Which you did in the minor leagues. You went through the IHL, AHL, Central Hockey League with Fort Worth back mm-hmm. in the day. And... It's worth noting, though, goalie of the year, I believe, that season. You had a fantastic 73-74, which fast forward to the next season, you end up with the Islanders and spend the next, I don't know, six, seven, eight years of your career there. There's some amazing names to think about here that you played alongside and with. Billy Smith, Dennis Potvin, Brian Trache, Mike Bossy, the legendary Al Arbor as a coach, Bill Torrey mm. as the GM, who a fellow St. Lawrence grad. What are your memories of the time in Long Island? Well, you know, I was with the organization from day one. Um, Montreal traded me for I don't even know who, but that's who I started with, to the Islanders. Um, but I didn't play, like you said, until my um, second year I got some games. But what I remember was, um, like, L. Arbor, we love that guy. I know, you know, you might hear sometimes, love the coach, and 
they just throw it out there. But Al Arbor, uh, he, he was indescribable. And um, Barry Trotz now uh, with the Islanders, rather phenomenal year. I think he's got some of Al's qualities. Al had no ego. I mean, he, he had confidence, and but he, he never put his ego in front. We were always the, the, the show, yet you had an answer to Al. But he was fair, but he was very direct, you know, which I loved. Uh, but he was kind, and he knew your family, and he, you just got a sense that even when he was mad at you, Mike, it wasn't like he didn't like you. You know what I mean? Well, some, some coaches, they, they scared me. They got so mad, I, I thought, geez, that guy can't stand me. He mustn't be the way he's talking to me. You know, but Al was just had that balance. So that leadership from Al, and you know, you being a goalie, I remember um, I won my – I lost my first game in Oakland the year before the old California Golden Seals three to one. Then they brought me back and I played against them in the North Stars and won that game. So then that was just to end that season. And then my first full season coming up, the only reason I got a chance, Mike, was that Jerry Desjardins, a very good goalie. And I just saw him this summer. I hadn't seen him forever at the, at the Islander reunion he decided he was going to jump to the world hockey. It was the new um, mm. league that started up. And if you remember, like they rated the NHL, they, they, they were offering three times as much salary. Right. So and that opened he, up some spots then. It created jobs across the board. Exactly. And he, he had been offered to stay with the Islanders. Billy Smith was already there. If he signs, I, I don't, I don't get an opening, but he and his wife decided, no, we're going to, the Michigan Stags, it was a team in Detroit. Long-lived so team, right? I didn't even know they existed. <laughs> oh, no, they didn't last long. They didn't even make it through the year, but they certainly opened the door for me, so I'm forever grateful to the Michigan I, Yeah, Stags. I hope Jerry got paid, you know? It's, it's one of those things, like, <laughs> teams going out of business, hope they at least got their paycheck before they went under. <laughs> uh, well, I, I know. Actually, what happened was there, he, 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 he was smart. He got it in his contract that if they folded, he was a free agent, and then he, he went to um, Buffalo. He uh-huh. went back to the NHL. But for me, that's what I'm saying. That's like divine intervention because why would he leave? And then he didn't really leave to a good situation, but it worked out for him too. But anyway, so then like Al played me. I remember that next year. Okay, it's going to be Smitty and I. And we go into Pittsburgh, and I'm not good. And, and Pittsburgh was really good back then. Um and they, I think I got beat like eight to two, seven to two. It doesn't matter. It was bad. And I'm thinking, well, I'm done. But what Al did was we were on a road trip, and the Kansas City scouts had just come into the league, expansion team. And he could have played Smitty, but my second game was against Kansas City, and he probably knew that it would be an easier challenge and, Maybe I could get the win, and I went in there, and I still remember that game because we did win. And but that was the kind of guy he was, and you would have loved him because you're a goalie. He he was very fair to us. He didn't just alternate us. He said, you know, you might play three or four, Chico, and I and I did play more than Smitty in the regular season for those mm-hmm. early years, even the year we won the cup. Yeah. But he'd say, but I'm not going to eliminate one of you guys. It was, it was sort of like what Barry Trotz did this year again with the Islanders. Both Grace and uh, Leonard 
felt like, hey, we're equal. And so that was, that's what Al was able to do. And then, of course, um, we got lucky. They, they lowered the, um, the age of the draft from 20 or 21 to 18. Because uh, I don't know if it was John Nelly or Rob Rabbit, somebody sued them, said, no, we can go to war. We can, you know, in the United States, we can vote. We, you, you, can't, you can't deny us from playing in the NHL. So what happened, like, when, when it lowered it to 18, you got all the 18, 19, 20-year-olds. You had so many more players into the draft that year because they lowered it. And so we got, like, we got Clark Gillies, Bobby Bourne, um, um, Trotch. I mean, we loaded up. Like, our scouting staff was terrific with the Islanders. And um, so we very quickly, uh, that year, my first year, we were down – nothing to Pittsburgh and came back and won and you know just a lot of wonderful things happened that year. How is Billy Smith as a goalie partner? Because I look at you guys playing 40, 45 games apiece during the season and like you said he ended up playing a lot more in playoffs but I'm wondering what kind of relationship you had as a tan. Well you know a really good lesson for me was was looking at people and seeing the full package. Like, Billy and I are still good friends. I saw him a few weeks ago at a signing on Long Island. He and I understood each other because we respected each other and we hung out and our wives were friends. But, but Smitty, Smitty was like, ba- like Babe Ruth of baseball. Smitty didn't follow the rules of, like, you got to do this, you got to do that, you know, you got to be disciplined. Smitty, he worked relatively hard. But he didn't, like, he wasn't over the top. Later in his career, he realized he had to work out harder. Smitty didn't really analyze his style that he was doing. It just fell into place that, like, probably really gifted players, that he just seemingly did most things right. And then he had that incredible drive of, he told me that the way he got fired up, he would get his mind set into that other team is going to try to take money out of my pockets. They're going to try and make me look bad. They might even bump me in the crease. No one's touching me. No one's, I, I, I'm taking no prisoners with the opposition. And that was his pregame ritual. It wasn't visualizing, oh, Guy Lafleur coming down with a big shot or Bobby Orr. It was that guy there. I don't like that guy. That guy's mm-hmm. going to try and, you know, and, and I'm telling him, Mike, at first, when he told me that, it was years later, I thought, come on, Smitty, there had to be more. Said, nope, that's all I would do, and my emotions would get up high. And then, and he did it right after the national anthem. He didn't even prepare, you know, really. till as soon as the national anthem was over, he said, I'd pick one guy, and I'd start getting worked up. <laughs> so, I said, come on, Smitty, you got to do more. He said, nope. So he was really the I definition think. of battle and Billy, like people called him, that he was truly a competitor more than he was an analyst and a technician at all. His entire drive was just simply to beat the other team mercilessly in any way possible. <laughs> that is very well put. My death, exactly <laughs> it. You know, um, what you will not believe, but... Uh, uh, Kevin Weeks told me because Kevin worked with him. Billy Smith. Now you know yourself. Well, you know the way you we seal off the post now is so different than when we played. But still, mm-hmm. your 
skate is inside the post, inside the, the scoring area. But what Smitty would do, he would take his skate and he'd put it around the post. And it would actually be outside the post. Now you, you think, yeah, today on. we call that the overlap, which is actually something we'll do on purpose on occasion on the net drive or something. Yeah, I actually read about Glenn Hall doing this too. I wonder if Smitty got it from Glenn Hall. Well, maybe, but I don't know that Glenn did that very often. Maybe. I don't know where Smitty got it from because Smitty wasn't... The other thing was he didn't know who other players were. I mean, he got into a fight with Dave Semenko, who just about oh. knocked him out. Oh. And Smitty says, who was that guy? I said, Smitty, you got to know who you're butt-ending. You can't be slashing guys that are, like, holding people and knocking them out. And, and Semenko had done that earlier in the year. But so he could have picked it up from someone else, or he might just thought, that's a good idea. It'll, it'll stop them from wrapping around. You know, well, now you can't do that. Nobody, Nobody does, because... You don't stand up to seal the post. Mostly, they all go down. As you know, to tell you, you go down generally. So, um, but he he just ad libbed. That's what I say. He was like Babe Ruth. You know, Smitty could have had a hot dog before the game and still went out and played. <laughs> Maybe he had a couple it. in Montreal, right? The Sheehan Show in between periods after the game's over. <laughs> <laughs> well, I had a few of those. I had a lot of those. Still like those. But no, you will not. Out of all, well, I shouldn't say out of all of them, Jacques Plant was kind of pretty different um, from goalie. And Terry Sachek, of course, there's going to be a movie out on Terry Sachek. And Terry Sachek, a very tragic story, um, but one of the great goalies of all time, but a little bit troubled, you know, and did things a little differently. But, but Smitty, he just did them. And I look at him like, here's the difference. When I would go down, Pucks might find a way underneath me. But when Smitty went down, Pucks never went under him. And, and it wasn't like, oh, he's figuring out, oh, yeah, this is the way I should go down in this situation. He just did it. And he had a gift that way. And that's why he is only one of the few, I think only three goalies, to ever win four Stanley Cups in a row. Hmm. Dryden and, of course, Jacques won five. And then Smitty. So, but don't you find it interesting? Like, Smitty does not get the public recognition that he deserves when they talk about great goalies. I mean, we will as goalies. Which is really funny because usually praise is heaped on the goalie so much more than we deserve a lot of times. And you win four straight cups. You've had to been very good. You had to consistently go out there and perform. And I, I, I can't even imagine pulling off four in a row like that, much less one, you know. And for you when, yeah. you, when you won the Stanley Cup in 1980, I know you didn't start through playoffs, but what was the sense and the feeling like for you when you got to raise it over your head? As you know, when you see any athlete winning something major, they don't go very deep intellectually because you can't think. It's just all emotion. First of all, we had underachieved for a couple of years before. So we were desperate to get that off of our back. And I will say it was for an hour, Mike, after the game in the dressing room, you're not really thinking. I mean, you're not analyzing. You know how they say, oh, I love so-and-so. Oh, he's just the greatest teammate. <laughs> it's just because it's just emotion more than you're trying to make any sense of what happened. For us, it was a relief. And whoever wins it this year, and it's 
it's going to be an unexpected one. I guess maybe not Boston, but um, it, it's going to be the same thing. It's such a grind for two months uh, when you finally reach the end and you are standing on top of the heap. Uh, it's just why athletes play the game. You know, it really is. It's, uh, but unfortunately, it doesn't last long. By the end of the summer, they were all saying, well, can you do it again? Hmm. So, well, I was it, curious. I'm wondering, too. I mean, like you go and you win the cup. Sometimes now people just leave town a day or two afterwards. But how long did you guys stick together celebrating and partying and hanging out after you'd actually won it? Well, well you know, what you don't want to do, Mike, you don't want to go to bed too early. Because the way life is, whatever your event was, a birthday party, whatever, once you go to sleep, you wake up the next morning, a little bit of the glow's off it. Like it, it diminishes a little bit, just a little. And then you sleep again, and then you diminish it again. And then, you know, two months later, yeah, it was nice, but you moved on to something else. So that's why you stay up all night, because it's a continuation of that event that's going to start dissipating when you first go to sleep. So we left very late. Bill Torrey had all the, all the team over to his house, and we had a grand time. And then the next day was Memorial Day. And I remember I lived in East Norwich, Long Island, and it was a Memorial Day parades. And I went out with my daughter and my wife, and we're standing there early in the morning. And it's funny, we lived in Oyster Bay on the Long Island there, and the parade started down below the hill, and then we could hear the the band and, and, you know, the parade coming. It was coming. It was coming. And so I'm just curious, thinking, oh, it's going to be interesting. I wanna... And I look, and leading the parade, I still chuckle at it today, is Butch Goring. Butch had known someone and had gone somewhere and stayed up all night. He was the honorary leader, I guess what would you say, the flag bearer of that Memorial Day parade, the day after we won the cup, he's carrying the flag. He's got his his blue suit on with those big <laughs> heels that were popular in 1980. He's and wearing I platforms thought, to lead a parade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and he he's got the same suit on he had when we had the game yes the day before, and he stayed up all night, obviously. And um, but you know, so it. I mean, it is. Um, yeah, it's. It's all that you see when players are, you know, celebrating after, uh, you know, a victory. I mean, a big victory like that. And so uh, it was one of, obviously, the highlights of my career. And, and in a closeness between our group, because we had, we had underachieved. They were starting to call us chokers. You know, you could beat them up. You can intimidate them. There were signs, fire, Al Arbor, don't trade our players. We did make that big trade for Butchie Goring. But my point is, if it went the other way, it was like it was like Washington last year, Mike. If Washington doesn't win, didn't win last year, I, I, it might have been over for that group. And of course, they got knocked out in the first, uh, second round. Was it the second round this year? Whatever. But that was us. We had to win that year, or players were going to be traded, coaches maybe moved. I don't know what would have happened, but. Getting it done finally, it bonded us together. It welded us together as a as a group. That uh, we had a reunion last summer, and it's just the best uh, when we all get together. 
It's amazing. I wanted to ask you something a little bit off topic of the Stanley Cup, but more along the lines of goalie things. And you had an mm-hmm. iconic mask when you were in Long Island that had Long Island painted on the forehead of it. And you also wore a golf glove on your glove hand for at least part of your career, I guess. So I'd, I'd yeah. like to get the background and some of the reasons why you wore the glove and also maybe even who painted or who made that mask for you. Well, the glove was just out of my, I, I don't know if I was catching the, the puck wrong, but you know, well, you wouldn't know. But back then, like you, you just had a glove that was given to you. Say if you like the Cooper, I don't know, G21 or whatever, you didn't have this custom glove. And for whatever reason, when I was catching the puck, it would be on my first finger. Uh, it would get start swelling in there. But, you know, and of course you want to catch the puck, right? You want to catch your glove on the puck. So it would swell up, especially in practice. So I started wearing that golf glove, glove that seemed to, you know, soften the blow a little bit. And then I had a completely white mask. And at that time, now we're talking 75, I'm a rookie. And most goalies just had a white mask, except they might put the sticker of their team on it or just a little touch of paint. But this high school student who was an art, um, she loved art, her boyfriend worked in the clubhouse, came on game nights, and we had played on a Thursday. We didn't play till the next Monday. And he said, hey, could I, my girlfriend would love to paint your mask something cool. What do you think? Her name was Linda Spinella. Probably if she got married, it's not that now. But I thought, oh, I, I mean, can I just give it to a high school art student to paint? What might that look like? <laughs> so anyway, I said, yeah, go, go ahead and do it. And, and Mike, we didn't have a backup mask. There, you could not afford two masks. The, the equipment guys were not going to break the budget, so you had a backup mask. But anyway, she took it home, and then Monday she brought it, and then we had that practice, and I'm looking at it, and you know, I don't know what it's like in the dressing room now or in the world of hockey. I think guys are still pretty humble, but back then you were so afraid of stick it out, like, hey, look at me, I'm mm-hmm. I'm more special or whatever. Right. So I thought if I wear this and, and other teams or my teammates think I'm a hot dog, um, that's not going to be good. So I, I remember soul searching and thinking, should I or shouldn't I? But the good news was, Mike, I didn't have a backup. It wasn't like, should I or shouldn't I? <laughs> you didn't I? have a choice. You had to wear the thing. <laughs> exactly. I remember, you know, they played some games in the Coliseum. It was the same Coliseum that they have now. I remember walking out and I do my mask up before I went on the ice. I didn't go out without a mask done up. So I remember going out and I was one of the first Mike and I'm not bragging, but I was one of the first to run on the ice. I thought, you know, all goalies kind of just go slow and step on the ice at that time. They'd have like three or four pucks and they just drop them. But I said, I, I got nothing going. I got to be noticed. I got to do something special. So I'm going to charge out on the ice. Like I got all this energy. Like and you're flying in and out of the do. bullpen. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, it was, and trust me, it was just a look. Um, it, but as I skated around um, maybe three or four times, I could hear a buzz. Like people said, what has he got on? What is that thing? Like they hadn't seen it before. So, um, you know, fortunately, the other thing is we know how superstitious we can be. We won, and that helped. But, um, the press and people made a big deal of it. And, and then the hall of fame said, Hey, can, um, can we have that mask? We, 
you know, so it's in the Hockey Hall of Fame, my first one, but Linda painted me a second one that was almost identical. And just a little aside from that, Mike, I traded it for a Terry Sawchuk jersey because I went to another mask in the late uh, 70s. But then my daughter said to me um, in early 2000s, hey, Dad, why, why did you trade that mask? Why didn't you keep that mask? Well, I said, I, you know, I traded it. It was Terry Sawchuk, Hall of Famer jersey. I thought it was a good deal. But it came up in an auction, and I said, okay, well, I'll buy it back. Well, it ended up costing me, Mike, almost $12,000 to buy my mask back. But it was okay because I had the Sawchuk jersey, which was worth about fifteen. I got my mask for twelve, so I'm thinking I probably made three grand. I don't know, but hey, that's a good so investment. I, that, I mean, that's a ten, that's like a ten percent rate, man. That's great. You're beating the yeah, S and yeah. <laughs> No, you're right, and so I still have that, and it's a treasure, and um, so I'm always grateful for that whole situation, especially Linda, yeah, for having cool. done such a good job. Well, yeah. You may- you know, you kind of went from the highest of the highs with the Islanders, and you got to bask in it the next season. You were with them up until trade deadline. But from that point forward, though, you got traded to Colorado along with Steve Tambellini. I played with his son, Adam, this year, ironically. But you played for oh. some teams who weren't necessarily very good. Colorado Rockies and New Jersey back then when the team mm-hmm. moved, it mm-hmm. mired in mediocrity to be pleasant to it. Was it a big step back? Did you have any type of you know, feelings of remorse seeing your former team go on and win a couple cups while, you know, you were playing for these teams who are was really difficult to get wins with? Oh, absolutely, Mike. That that was one of the most painful experiences was getting traded. Al cried, and Steve, you mentioned Steve, he's balling. Because Al, it was trading deadline day, and I, I thought that we had passed because trading deadline was 12 o'clock, but it was 12 o'clock in each time zone. So it had passed in, we couldn't have made, the Islanders couldn't have made a trade with the East Coast team, but they were trading with Colorado, which was Mountain Standard Time. Mm. So I'm on the bus ready to go to Winnipeg, and it's after one. I'm thinking, I don't know what the holdup is. The trading deadline's over. But then my friend, Lauren Henning, who had just become an assistant, came on and said, Chico, Steve, I said, Lorne, I'm traded. He goes, yeah. So anyway, it was tough, but. Ironically, our, I got traded to the, the Rockies, and they had great uniforms, and it was a great environment. It was a, like um, Rob Ramage, a terrific player, said, you know, Chico, Colorado, great place to lose. And he didn't mean it, but he said, we don't win here much, but it's a great environment. But the first game was in Madison Square Garden, so I didn't have to travel to meet the team because I'm living on Long Island. I went in for that first game. Madison Square Garden against the Rangers, and we beat them three to two. And I had a pretty good, darn good game. And Steve Tamalini got the winning goal. It was like, it was a you know just a fairy tale first game. And I thought, oh, this might be okay. But no, it wasn't. We we did not play well. And you know, our dressing room and um, at our practice rink in Denver was a a mobile home trailer, like one you would park and live in. I'm not one. Double that wide? Was, like a tornado yeah, magnet? Exactly. Double wide? Was, no, it wasn't double wide, though. <laughs> yeah. Single wide. Some guys oh, dressed in the living room, some in the in the bedrooms. This was big-time hockey in, in Denver. That was in then, Like, this is no word of lie. We'd have to run from the um, trailer 
across the parking lot with our towels on because there was no shower in the trailer, the dressing room. We'd have to run across and then shower and then run back to get dressed across the parking lot with just our towel on. Fortunately, the weather, it wasn't. Can you even fathom what, what that would look like on social media nowadays? Oh, oh no, it, you just, you just, it wouldn't happen. And then after we got all of our, our um, stuff on, equipment, we couldn't put our skates on in the dressing room. We had to walk across the parking lot, and then we'd have to go and sit on the bench there and put our skates on. So what I'm saying is not only do we lose on the scoreboard, but you kind of feel like a loser when your dressing room is a mobile home trailer. And so... Yeah, it's a it's, tough go, for sure. I mean, yeah, I mean, you get to New Jersey and... You know, Wayne Gretzky calls the organization Mickey Mouse and that they're ruining the league. What was the reaction in your locker room like when you found out about those comments? I can't. Was it a rallying cry? Was it? How did guys take that? Well, we took it not so bad. We didn't like it. But the morning we played in Edmonton and we were flying commercial in. We didn't charter either. So I'm we're in the Edmonton airport. And um, my friend who I played with with the Islanders, he was now the coach and GM. He says, Chico, come here. I got to talk to you. And I said, Oh, okay. He says, uh, I said, What's up? He said, I, I just got. I'm going to get fired today. He said, What? You're going to get fired? Have you seen the headlines? The Edmonton paper? I said, No. He said, Here. He showed me. He says, Gretzky calls um, Devils organization Mickey Mouse. He said, I, I know I'm going to get fired. You, you know, the greatest player in the game. He says that about your organization, and I'm the go-to guy. And sure enough, we flew back. Billy got called in, and he got fired. And um, and it's, I mean, we weren't good, but, you know, we got beat 11-2 that night, 11-3. And mm. I got to tell you, it's 10-2 it's to 2 with about two minutes left. And um, the Oilers get a penalty. Okay, so now it's 10 to 2. We're on the power play. I went to the bench and I said, what do you think, guys? We're not going to score nine goals or to win this thing. We're not getting nine goals in, this, in these next two minutes. Let's just not let them score. Because here's what Glenn Sather, the coach, did. I know he's a GM, too. But to kill the penalty. So here's Wayne. Yeah, I know, and I like Wayne. He felt really bad about the comment. But I'm saying, yeah, you know, we're Mickey Mouse, but it is 10 to 2. Did you and Curry, Yari Curry, who is one of the great scorers, did you guys have to go out and kill the penalty when you're already beating us 10 to 2? So I said to our guys, listen, we can't score 9 or even 8 to tie. But let's not embarrass ourselves and let them get a shorthanded. Because you know, Mike, you're a goalie. You know. They weren't out there just to kill the penalty. Those two guys, they were out there to see if they could score. And sure enough. Yeah, it's point exactly. night. It's point night. And that's, 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 I mean, I remember a game this year I was in, and I, uh, too many teams I've played for for me to remember which team it was. But I remember looking out and we were losing, I don't know, five or six to one with two or three minutes left. And it was the same deal. We get a penalty and they wheel out their top power play unit. And you're just thinking, First off, that's not a nice thing to do. But secondly, you've got a bunch of guys on your bench 
that would love to play some power play minutes, put them out there. You're going to yeah. win the game. Let them get some PP time. Ride the game off into the sunset rather than go out there and just try to blast the other club like that. Well, and Mike, I would say 30 seconds or less into the uh, penalty kill, guess what happened? Two on one. Gretzky over to Curry. Wham. 11 to 2. So they scored on it. Yeah. And, and that's all I'm saying is, Wayne, you ran the score up, which I don't have a problem. I mean, I'm not, we're big boys. You know, if they're going to try and run the score up, we'll do something about it if you can. We couldn't. But my point was, and Wayne regretted it because then he found out that Billy McPhillin got fired. And so, but it was a, a, a special game because then, as Wayne, when Wayne first returned to the Meadowlands at that time to New Jersey, uh, they had where they were giving out Mickey Mouse hats from Disney World, you know, and everybody wore those in the crowd. And, you know, there were lots of signs. And um, so it was really a, a emotionally filled game. But um, there were there were a few moments that that left you just, oh, Mike, there were a couple of times I was almost crying in the dressing room out of frustration um, because, yeah. you know, guys can try. But as you know, if you don't have skill, um, you're not gonna you're not gonna win. Like skill kills. You you I would sooner have guys that were a little bit undisciplined but can finish off and be snipers than just the guy who works hard and you need those guys too, but you need some guys like Mike Bossy was pretty self centered, but we didn't mind that because Boss would help us by being self centered to score goals. And I can live with those guys and we just didn't have enough of them. Well, the hardest part about that I found too, because I've been on good teams, bad teams, but when you go out there and you feel and you know in your heart of hearts that no matter how well you play that night, you still might get smoked. That's a really tough feeling when you're just trying to keep your head above water and you're thinking, I got to keep it under three tonight. And then it just starts to get worse and worse. And you're like, I got to keep it under five. And then I can't even imagine trying to keep it under double digits, which I've had to do a couple of times in my career. But it's just a really tough scenario as a goalie to take in because you know at any moment the game can get sideways. And I think that when you're on a team like that, when you do get wins, they're really memorable because you probably played a really big part in that. Well, that is really true, and we didn't win much. And I, I remember some of the big wins we had with Colorado, uh, as well as um, as the Devils. So you're you're right. I mean, but you know, and I I would say to people, you know, being on a losing team isn't the worst thing in terms of learning life lessons and just seeing how the other half lives. It's not bad playing on a losing team for one year. But if you play for more than one year, it starts to chip away at your self-confidence, the way you look at yourself, your enthusiastic level. So I didn't mind the one year, but, you know, it started to go with Colorado. And then, you know, it was probably the third or fourth year when I was in New Jersey, Mike, it started to turn around where we were getting some good players because we were drafting pretty high because we finished so low. Um, it started to turn around, but there was about three years there where it was tough. You know, you got to finish off on a little better note in Philadelphia. Played a year and a little bit there, and most people, like I say, that are my age or younger are going to remember you as a broadcaster, and you've spent the last couple decades doing that. How did your transition into the media world begin and then how much have you enjoyed it since then well i think i'm i got a little bit of 
you and me. I mean, I like fans. I like to talk. I learned that in Long Island that the the writers and the fans just want to know that you're giving an effort to recognize them, that they can leave and say, hey, you know, he really seemed interested in what I had to say. He listened. Or if you're a writer and they'll say, well, you know, he really thought through that. He didn't just cliche it. And so I learned that because I was really shy when I was young. So then I retire, which was great. But then I thought, well, I did some coaching. I coached in the juniors for part of a year, went to Ottawa was a scout goalie coach and an assistant coach. And then um, the broadcasting position opened up um, with New Jersey. And I knew someone at Madison Square Garden. Pete Silverman was his name. And he said, hey, why don't you come? You know, you, you were a good analyzer when you were breaking down things in the media. Why don't you come? And I got Doc Emmerich, who's one of the greatest announcers, you two guys. And I mean, it wasn't hard to sell me on it at that point. And then uh, I went to New Jersey and they had a really good team. So it was fun to cover them. And then I worked with, in my mind, I played for the greatest coach, Al Arbor, who had a great personal touch as well as knew the game. Then I got to work with who I think is one of the greatest announcers, Mike Emmerich. And he taught me a lot. And he said to me, look at you, you're going to make some mistakes. But here's the two things that you can control. One, you can talk to some players and do your homework and bring, bring something. Like think about it in some insight, insightfulness. And secondly, be enthusiastic. Like if it's a dump in the corner, say, oh, what a, what a dump in the corner there. He did, whatever. Because <laughs> you got to sell it. Yeah, you got to sell it. Said, Mike, if the people at home are assuming you're just sort of blase and not really fired up for the game, then why would they be so fired up? And that was the greatest lesson. Doc says, you're going to make mistakes, but remember, once you make them, it's on its ways to Mars. Like you can't bring it back. Don't dwell on it. Don't beat yourself up and talk about all oh, that. You know, if you got a little something funny to say about, well, I blew that one. Like one time, Mike, I did a, I did a replay off the big board hanging. The replay was on the scoreboard, not on my monitor. And the camera producer said, Chico, what are you doing? You're, you're describing a replay on the board at center ice, not on what we're showing on TV. And I looked down, and it was completely different. So the fans must have thought. So I made some mistakes, but I had great people. Roland Dratch was uh, my was my uh, producer for the whole time I was there. He was awesome. He was like Al Arbor, and you know. So it was a no brainer, fun. I to me much much more diverse and and I, I guess fun. You can. You can still have your family life, and I'm not knocking coaching. I mean, but I, I see how much work those coaches do. My goodness, whatever they make, they deserve it. But with TV, it's a really nice transition job from leaving the ice and still being involved in the game. Is there anything about Doc Emmerich that the general public may not know, whether it's a memory or a story of him that would be really entertaining? Because we see him on TV, we listen to him there, and he's so enthusiastic, but there's a lot of dimensions to Doc that I'm sure you've seen that a lot of us haven't. Do you have anything special about him um, you can share? Well, you know, having worked with him so much, Doc is very intense, 
I, I think, intense in his preparation. When he comes to the game, Mike, it's like you. You know, if you're a forward, you can you can be having a thing maybe a rough night, and um, then, well, I'm just going to play it safe. I'm going to go up and down my wing. They're not going to score on me. But a goalie can't say, you know, I'm going to take a few shifts off here, just trying to get my head together. With Doc, people don't realize the preparation he's done. Doc Emmerich took voice lessons. When Doc first came in, his voice was a little high, and he knew it. But like the great ones, he doesn't think, well, I'm here, I'm so what now. He took voice lessons. And what I, when he made a mistake, he got the wrong guy. He would bang that table. And the other thing he didn't like, and I loved it for him, he said, Chico, here's the thing is, you don't interrupt me over the play. This is old school. But I, I think this is still the way they should do it. The play-by-play should be describing the play as the game's unfolding. He can bring it to a crescendo. He can, he can like, Doc does it better than anybody. The play's developing. Then he brings you when it gets around the goal. He said, so don't talk over me when I'm describing the game. And I, but as soon as the play ended, Doc didn't ramble. He wouldn't go, yeah, you know, that last play, you know, there's a great save. And he didn't try to add more to what he had described and take away my time. He said, you don't take away my time. I don't step on your toes. I will stop. And you listen to him. He never goes on after the goal scored. And, um, and then the other thing is he and I hung out. We hung out after the games. Um, we, were, we both have a strong faith that, that bonded us even more. Um, no, Doc's just, He's just a kind, uh, considerate man. Well, Doc Emmerich's a national treasure, if you ask me. I think he's one of the one of the kindest guys I've met who come in the locker room, get your whole story, treat you with respect, whether you're a call-up player or an established NHL star. And you guys had a, an amazing camaraderie that you could tell worked really well. One of my favorite segments from those is back when you did Chico Eats. How did this come about? Because you'd go all around arenas sampling the food, critiquing it. It looked like you were having a blast doing it. It, it, Was it that way for you? Well, thanks, Mike, for remembering. Yeah, no, our producer, uh, Roland Dratz, suggested it. And then, of course, Doc was such a supporter. I mean, Doc was so good when we'd show it. But there was pressure because there was nobody helping me. and And I couldn't just, I could just eat the food and say, yeah, it's good or bad. But I knew that, like, with you, you got to do some entertainment. There's got to be a catch to it. So every night when I would go to one of these concession stands, and we, you know, the building was new in, in New Jersey and Newark there. And so we're trying to help those vendors. And, but I would have to think, okay, what, what goofy angle can I use to um, do the Chico Eats tonight? And I got to tell you for over two years, each night something came. And we had T-shirts. There were three sets of T-shirts. I never got any royalties, but that's okay. But um, and it was it, it's a, <laughs> you forgot to put that I in the know, contract. <laughs> but it was the thing that people remember the most. And again, I'm like you know this. I would get fans involved. You know what I find in life. I I used to have a real um, sort of narrow comfort zone, a comfort box that I didn't want to go out because then I thought, well, I might say something stupid. I might look bad. I might, you know, make me feel really uncomfortable. 
But by this stage, and when I started to do that, I said, just go and have fun. And if you make a mistake, laugh at yourself and try to include some fans and, and they will bring something. So it was, I think, this interaction. And I would say to any young, you know, broadcaster, you know, you've got to take yourself serious. But the, one of the things that I did for Mike Emmerich, we had a talk one time. And I said, Mike, I mean, you're really good and you're a good friend. But you tell me to let it go to Mars when I make a mistake. I said, you get so upset with the fact that you might make a mistake or if I did jump in on you, you'd be upset with me. But you you can roll with that punch just like I, I can. And the game scenes are for us because I said, Mike, you're not going to be perfect. Like you try so hard. And he said, you know what? You're right. And then we started having this loosey-goosey because I was quirky and kind of goofy and off the wall a little. But Doc... That's most of us. We're well, all creative. Well, not yeah. all of us, but, <laughs> but you are, and I am. Um, and, and But you you got to recognize, okay, that might not sell with everybody. So I'm goofy. But Doc, while he was perfect for me, he could take that goofiness and turn it into like a little chuckle or a little, you know, he could bring it to where it should have been. And that's what I loved about Doc is that... Um, he and I became very loose and had a blast on the air. Your tenure with the Devils and, and also Doc Emmerich, and you could tell that your interaction was so genuine and it coincided with the time of a goalkeeper named Martin uh-huh. Ruder, three Stanley Cups. And not just Marty, but also the amazing players that were on the Devils during that run. But specifically for you as a goaltender, what was it like to watch somebody who is now labeled as, if he's not the greatest goaltender of all time, he's in the top two or three unquestionably. What was it like to watch him enter the league, mature as a goalie, win Stanley Cups, but to watch him just go through his career uh, as a Devil? That's a good question. You know, Mike, it was exciting and I was envious. I was envious that Mari Brodeur had a little bit of Billy Smith. And this is what I'm saying about the great ones. There, there's an angle. Like, he didn't play the butterfly. He didn't play conventional hockey. He, he, he played the short side, if you will, folks. That's the side that's closest to the goalpost. He could stand up, like, and he, you couldn't beat him five-hole, but you couldn't beat him far post either. And you, that's why goalies now butterfly, because they want to cover that far corner. They want to cover between the legs. I had goalies in the NHL when I'd go in and talk, and they'd say, tell me, how, how, does, how does Marty Broder do it? Because he was doing things outside the box that was a combination of old-school goalie, because he went to a goalie school of a very famous goalie coach. You probably heard this. He never played in the NHL, uh, Allaire, uh, Francois Allaire. And Francois tried to make him butterfly. And he went home and told his dad, Denny, who was uh, the uh, photographer for the Canadians, he said, Dad, I'm not going back because he's going to try and change me. He's going to try and make me be a butterfly goalie, and I don't want to do that. So he, he didn't go to that school. He, he, he went half a day, and that was it. But my point was with Martin was that I knew I was looking at someone who saw the game differently than most goalies, that he executed stopping the puck entirely on not unorthodox but in a way that only someone with incredible mind 
in skill perception could do. Like, you couldn't teach a young goalie, say, okay, I'm going to teach you to be like Marty Broder or Billy Smith. No, no, those guys, they just evolve within themselves. And so for Marty, playing the uh, puck was just always exciting because he always had the ability to score on an empty net. And, um, you know, so... Which, Which he, he did. did. Yes, he yeah. did. And um, That had to be a fun one to call. Oh, that was, yeah. I can still remember him jumping up off the ice. I couldn't believe how high he could jump when he scored that goal. I think it was against Montreal. Um, and then, you know, the other thing was Marty was always a good quote. He'd give you what you needed. He was approachable. Um, you know, he wasn't like a... Well, I don't know who it would be. In goaltending, it's not like a flashy player. But I think it might, I think it was his consistency level. No, he had great defense. Don't get me wrong. He, he came in at the great era to fit his style, and they protected not many backdoor plays. Rebounds were cleared. But at the same time, that guy, he didn't make many mistakes. And, um, you know, I guess, you know, like if it was a Broadway dancer, you know, like Fred Astaire, there's been great at dancers. You don't know who Fred Astaire is, but there are some that say, no, he's a dancer's dancer. Like even the greatest dancers recognize that guy's a little better than the rest of us. Same thing with Marty. Even though I was an okay goalie, I recognize I'm watching a legend uh, develop here. And he certainly is that. And it's interesting, he could be in St. Louis now. That's I was just thinking the other day, I, I love what St. Louis is doing in the playoffs. And Chris Marty was in his management, in their management, but he's come back to the Devils now, and uh, they're very happy that he's come back home and is going to be part of the Devils for a long, long time. Well, it feels yeah. right, doesn't it? I mean, MB30 in a Devils jersey is what we all remember him as, and as a St. Louis, and it was really exciting to see him put on the jersey of the team that I grew yeah. up watching all the time. But Marty's a devil. And, you know, he's somebody who shaped my game, the way I handle the puck and the way that I try to read plays. And he was so much fun to watch. And it was always fun to hear your call of, of him and how he played. And I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. I think I've, I've learned more about your career than I ever expected, which was amazing. And I hope that uh, whatever comes in the future for you here, Chico, that you're enjoying it like you always do. And I know I'll see you down the road because we always run into each other in hotel lobbies, right? <laughs> yeah, I just so they don't know. I gave Mike a ride to the game in Ottawa. But, um, yeah, no, Mike, it's been a great run, you know. And I would just say to the fans, you know, enjoy the game. The game's never been in uh, better shape than it is now. I've been there. I've been around the NHL 40 years. Um, and so i kind of seen it all. But to come on and chit-chat with a fellow goalie, I mean, it makes my day, and I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Six Degrees with Mike McKenna. Please make sure that you like, comment, leave a rating, subscribe, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, Spotify, anywhere that you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.
Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. You know, when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.